1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m.
2: at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Fed Chairman Jay Powell, front and center, as investors await new comments and hints on a possible policy pivot. Unrest in China once again as police clash with protesters over COVID restrictions and lockdowns, now Beijing is stepping up its rhetoric. Live from the Bahamas, former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried set to speak today about the run-up and eventual collapse of his firm with many questions still unanswered. Plus, reading the tea leaves ahead of OPEC's big production decision this weekend with oil near one-year lows. And then later on, Apple CEO Tim Cook Looks to make some new friends in Washington ahead of a January power shift. It is Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan. Today, let's kick off this Wednesday morning with a check on U.S. equity futures on this final day of November, trading or otherwise. If you look right now, we're seeing a slight bid to the markets. The Dow is implied higher by roughly 40 points. The S&P just by about seven to eight points. And the Nasdaq up by 38. So very modest, but it's green at least for now. Ahead of the opening bell, right, the Dow is up nearly three and a half percent this month. And it's on pace for its second positive month in a row for the first time in more than a year. Similar story for the S&P 500, up two and a half percent roughly thereabouts this month. But the Nasdaq continues to lag down marginally is on pace right now for its third down month out of the last four. Still, though, just marginally. So we'll see if the Nasdaq can turn things around today. Checking in on the bond market yields currently fluctuating just a bit, but certainly just a little bit lower on the session. We're still below that four percent mark for 10 year Treasury note yields currently sitting right around three point seven three percent. The two year note yield four point four seven percent and the 30 year long bond three point seven nine percent. In energy, oil prices I mentioned before, OPEC meeting this weekend to discuss possible production cuts and/or raises. We don't know. OPEC plus is a mystery, but WGI crude right now is bid up two and a quarter percent, seventy-nine dollars and ninety-one cents, up about a buck seventy. Ice Brent Crude Futures, the World Benchmark gauge, up $1.82 to $84.84, 2% gains there as well. In cryptocurrencies, We're still tracking that 16,000 level in Bitcoin. And right now we are seeing prices to the upside up by two and a half percent, 16,873 and change for Bitcoin prices. Ethereum prices up nearly four percent, $1,265 and change as well. So we'll keep an eye on that slight bid in crypto today. Checking the overnight action in Asia and the early trade in Europe. We have our own Karen Cho standing by in our London newsroom with the latest there. Good morning, Karen.
3: Dom, good morning to you. Well, some more icing on the cake for Hong Kong markets today. It has been a bumper month. The 2% you mentioned on the S&P 500 for the month, compare that to 25% plus returns on the Hang Seng. So valuation coming to the fore. Notwithstanding the fact there are still challenges in China at this stage, we had uh, the latest read on factory activity. This was a slower than expected pace in November. Still further reports of protests on the ground around COVID restrictions in China. Guangzhou very much in focus in the over- Overnight hours. So the Hong Kong market in contrast to just slight gains on the Shanghai composite today and patching across the rest of the markets. Japanese stocks reversing and just four tenths on the Australian market. To Europe we just had a big data point crossing and it is encouraging. The EU inflation numbers are 10%. The expectation was for 10.4%. So slow moves but still going in the right direction. Also a reversal from the 10.6% we had in the month of October. On the markets we are seeing a stronger day of Trade. We've given up the higher ranges, but we've also given up the lower ranges. Somewhere in the middle, as we take a look at a half of a percent gain on the FTSE 100, 410s on the Zetra DAX. Again, a bumper month for German stocks. We've been up more than 8% for November. Italian stocks have been keeping pace as well. So those have been some of the stronger markets here in Europe. But the data on inflation, all very key as we count down to the next ECB meeting in just two weeks' time. Will it be 50 basis points or will it be 75? That is what the market is watching at this stage. Don, back to you. It.
2: Karen Cho, live in London with the latest there on the market action. Thank you very much for that. Let's get to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Good morning, Silvana.
4: Dom, good morning to you. Elon Musk on Twitter is rolling back a policy aimed at tackling misinformation related to COVID-19. Now, in a blog post, the platform did not specify the mitigation measures it would no longer support. But the move does come amid concerns of Twitter's ability to fight misinformation with half its staff gone, including those responsible for content moderation. Apple CEO Tim Cook is getting ready for a split Congress heading to Washington, D.C. this week to meet reportedly with several top Republican lawmakers. According to Bloomberg, Cook has scheduled sessions with Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, Daryl Issa of California and Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington. Jordan and McMorris-Rogers are likely to chair the two top committees overseeing the tech industry when Republicans retake the House next year. And Alibaba founder turned recluse, Jack Ma, has reportedly been living in Tokyo for nearly six months following China's crackdown of its tech sector and derailment of his Ant Group IPO. According to the Financial Times, along with Tokyo, Ma has also been traveling to the Japanese countryside, the U.S. and Israel, Dom.
2: With the latest there on those headlines, thank you very much for that. When we come back on the show, unrest in cities across China once again, this time in the face of very heavy police presence. We have a live report from Beijing coming up. Plus, a bad year for tech is about to get even worse, according to our next guest, especially when it comes to digital advertising. The stocks, he says, you need to stay away from coming up. And then later on, what investors should expect when Sam Bankman-Fried, SPF, speaks at this year's DealBook conference. A very busy hour is still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. Welcome back. That's Guangzhou, China. That was the scene in that China manufacturing city Tuesday night where protesters clashed once again with hazmat-suited riot police. Those demonstrations come just 24 hours after relative calm following Sunday's widespread demonstrations over the country's now three-year-long COVID lockdowns due to COVID zero and that policy. Our Yunus Yun joins us now from Beijing. Uh, Yunus, these videos... I'm even surprised that we could get them, right, because China censors everything, internet traffic and whatnot. But that's obviously coming from somebody's smartphone camera and it does show protests. Is this a time now where Beijing has to prepare a more formal response to what's been happening over the last few days?
5: Dom, um, I'm having a little bit of an audio issue, but I think you just um, were talking about the Guangzhou video of the protests. And what's interesting is that the mood of those protesters, as well as the public, could be affected by a big development in Chinese politics today the death of the former president and Communist Party General Secretary Jiang Zemin. Uh, Just moments ago, the state media announced that Jiang, who oversaw China in the 1990s and the early 2000s, uh, died in Shanghai at the age of 96 uh, due to leukemia and organ failure. Now, uh, China was tremendously successful under his tenure. Uh, China joined the WTO. Um, It also uh, successfully uh, oversaw the I saw that the return of Hong Kong to China from the UK. And it was a time when GM, uh, McDonald's, as well as a lot of other American multinationals uh, came into the country because it was a time when there was tremendous economic reform and opening up. Now, there are already comparisons being made to the time of uh, Jiang Zemin or just before uh, to the Tiananmen Square um, uh, incident in 19. 19- Eighty-nine, and that's because uh, there was also a death, which uh, and, and, and memorials, um, which had um, sparked the Tiananmen Square um, uh, protest. Um, a lot of that was because there was a, a big senior uh, figure in Chinese politics named Hu Yaobang, who was a big favorite of Chinese reformers. So people are making comparisons already, and um, obviously, in light of the fact that we have these COVID protests as well as. Uh, um, A lot of these uh, concerns uh, that the the Chinese leadership is going to be uh, thinking a lot about this at this stage.
2: All right. Eunice Yun live from Beijing with the latest there. Uh, Is your audio up? Can you hear me?
5: I couldn't. Now I can hear you now.
2: Now you can hear me. Okay so so my question before was Guangzhou. Is Beijing preparing yes. some kind of formal response? It has to be a situation now where, where they are seeing multiple days of this civil unrest. Police is heavier in terms of its presence. I mean, there has to be some kind of a, a more, I guess, forceful approach that they have to think about taking, whether it's formalized or not.
5: No. No, Beijing. So the senior leadership has not actually acknowledged the protests at all yet. So um, from a leadership level, a central government level, they haven't actually uh, formalized any type of response. However, what we did see on a local level is the city of Guangzhou announced that it's lifting its lockdown. Uh, It's still going to keep some of the controls in the high risk areas, they say, um, especially one particular uh, district. However, uh, people there have already said that they're starting to see some of those controls easing up. Dom?
2: All right. Yunus Yun, live with, uh, with the latest from Beijing. Thank you very much. Uh, to the broader markets now, as investors await a 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time speech from Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell that may give insight into possible policy pivots. Pivots, we use that word a lot these days. Now, ahead of that, a tweet reply from Elon Musk just this morning, urging the Fed to pivot sooner rather than later, reading, quote, trend is concerning, referring to a possible recession Fed needs to cut interest rates immediately. They are massively amplifying the probability of a severe recession. So joining me now on the phone is Ben Emmons, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Fixed Income and Macro Strategy at New Edge Wealth. Ben, uh, this is interesting. Elon Musk obviously carries a lot of sway on social media in the world of business or otherwise. And even he is now calling for the Fed to cut interest rates is that the appropriate action, or do we still have to fight inflation more forcefully?
7: Good morning, Dom. Yeah, I think the Federal Reserve is in fighting inflation camp because the inflation expectations, are, for example, from conference board yesterday, were again rising. And the Michigan survey showed also rising inflation expectations recently. So that's to the Fed's concern and problem. And although I guess Elon Musk has a point in terms of the effect that it already is having on the economy, the Fed tightening we had so far. The Fed is still in the mode of, like, we got to bring this rate up to a level where we're sure that inflation comes down and, in their mind, then avoid a recession. So they're not going to, unfortunately, listen to Elon Musk or, for example, to the, the business leaders in Texas that also were complaining about Fed tightening in, in the Dallas Fed business survey that came up yesterday. So. I will stick to the strong message today about fighting inflation until we get it under control.
2: That implies, Ben, that inflation is a bigger threat than an economic downturn or a recession. We've also heard uh, the the, the view that a recession may or may not be necessary to get inflation under control. How is one supposed to navigate a financial market, and investing environment, where you almost have to see a recession possibly in order to get inflation under control.
7: Yeah, it's the most telegraphed recession ever. And you know, uh, having met with some people about that that speak to a lot of businesses, that's what businesses are currently doing. They're telegraphing that they're really preparing for recession. So in some way you have to navigate the markets from that perspective that companies will continue to scale back and be more cautious and as a result the recession may then happen And so you cannot take significant risk in one direction or the other, right? In in other words, you cannot really be overweight equities too much here because of that recession. And bonds remain uh, challenged, too, because the Federal Reserve wants to get this inflation under control. So I think you have to be quite cautious here, even though it looks like that inflation is is starting to moderate.
2: Does that mean, Ben, that we return to the 60-40 stock bond portfolio or does that just mean we start to raise cash, even with these down markets on a relative basis, to position for even more downside ahead?
7: 60-40 can work again next year. I think that the, the, the yields on bonds are better. But the best position, Dom, to be in is in the shorter end of the yield curve. So if you do a 60-40, you would put the 40 more on short maturity treasuries and, and uh, other types of bonds and keep a, a, let's say, more conservative approach in equities. I think you can do reasonably well, uh, given that inflation will start to moderate as the Fed will push it hard to get it down. But, you know, ramping up all in cash is probably never be a good way. I think you should stay invested in the market. All right.
2: Interesting point there with a lot of investors I speak to, smart folks saying that, why take the risk when you can park your money in two year treasuries for near 4.5 percent? So, an interesting conversation certainly to be had. Ben Emmons, thank you very much. We'll chat with you, you soon. Still on deck for the show the rate shock rocking the U.S. housing market. A closer look at what's in store for homeowners and potential home buyers in the weeks and months ahead. That's coming up.
6: Today's big number. 60 million. That's how many hours Americans gained as a result of the shift to remote work, according to a study by the New York Fed. The report found the average employee slept an extra hour and spent two additional hours per day on leisure activities.
5: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play?
2: Wall Street is gearing up for another read on real estate with weekly mortgage apps and the October pending home sales index both due out later on this morning. This is on the back of yesterday's s and Schiller print, as you can see there, which fell for a third straight month in September. The decline matching economists forecast as inflationary pressures and surging interest rates have pushed buyers to the sidelines. No shock there. Let's talk more about this with Brad Dillman, chief economist at Cortland. Uh, this is not shocking at all, Brad, and I say this tongue-in-cheek. When interest rates rise, real estate becomes more expensive. So how much more downside can we see in real estate?
8: You know, as long as rates keep going up, we're going to see more downside, I think.
2: So if that's the case, how much is it? We've heard 20% thrown out there. We've heard even more than that. We've heard some say that this could be akin to what happened during in the lead-up to the great financial crisis when real estate values plummeted by even more than that? Is there a prospect for that? Or is the idea of a more soft or shallow recession one that's going to prop up the housing market on a relative basis?
8: I'll take the latter on that, uh, really just because we're talking about a different supply situation. You know, going into the Great Recession, the U.S. was significantly overbuilt just in terms of the number of housing units. Today, by most estimates, we're still underbuilt by at least 900,000 housing units. Some estimates are well north of that in the two millions.
2: If that's then the state of play for real estate, there are certain markets out there that have been perhaps more supply and demand imbalanced than others. You think of hot sectors and markets out in the southeastern United States, the southwest, certain metropolitan areas. What's the most vulnerable part of the real estate market right now, geographically speaking?
8: That's a great question because I think we also have to consider migration into that factor, right, as well as immigration. So immigration, you're tending to get a lot of people that are going to gateway markets, These are your coastal markets, but you've seen a lot of domestic migration to the Sunbelt. Now, that, of course, has been very bullish for those markets, but at the same time, you have had a supply response as well. When I think about what's really vulnerable, I think of it less in terms of geography, because, of course, it is interest rates that have determined a lot of what has happened over the last two years. And that's really national, right? That's the 10-year treasury rate and kind of a mortgage spread, you know, for the 30-year fixed on top of that. So I think about Some of these people who may have gotten over their skis over the last two years, people that use uh, very, very cheap credit to bid home prices and perhaps may end up on the wrong side of things if we do end up in a situation with systemic job losses.
2: Brad, it it wasn't just, you know, homeowners and, and prospective residential buyers that were in some cases over their skis using cheap money to leverage themselves to buy and bid up real estate. It was also institutions and commercial real estate investors who took advantage of those low interest rates to build out as well. When you when you look at real estate and you look at the residential market versus what's happening with commercial real estate, is there any more of a difference in terms of where you see the markets headed? Is one worse than the other, commercial or residential, right now?
8: Well, there's definitely some pain in the commercial space, too. Um, and uh, you know, many groups did go out and use cheap debt. I don't think anybody was really expecting we'd see uh, short end rates get as high as they have, and they're paying for that now. Um, so far, and I can speak to multifamily. You are seeing some pain in what we call the, the Class C space, where there's been some failures to pay. These are t- tends to be your cheaper multifamily product. Uh, but otherwise, you're seeing it hold together pretty well on the fundamental side. So even as the investors themselves are paying more as it relates to their debt expense, the fundamentals of the space are still quite strong. One caveat to that is that occupancies are loosening a bit. They're going back to something that we call more of a natural vacancy rate in the market. Uh, Vacancy rates had been too low during the pandemic, really as a result of the eviction moratoria and, and, and various ethics around that to make sure that people weren't going to be evicted for no reason. But that created a very, very tight market and that created very, very strong rent growth, to which today we are beginning to see a supply response. All
2: right. Brad Dillman, chief economist over at Cortland. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. All right, let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Philip Mena is in New York with the latest there. Good Wednesday morning, Philip.
9: Hi, Dom. Good morning. Millions remain under a severe weather threat today after 21 tornadoes tore through the south. In Louisiana, officials say at least two people were injured in Caldwell Parish. Sirens could be heard in Mississippi where the majority of the tornadoes touched down. Just take a look at the devastation in Lowndes County. Tornado watches are in effect in southeast Mississippi and for parts of Alabama until 6 a.m. Central Time. A federal jury found two members of the Oath Keepers, including its founder, Stuart Rhodes, guilty of seditious conspiracy. Prosecutors accused Rhodes of orchestrating a violent plot to keep Donald Trump in power, a plot they said helped cause the January 6th Capitol riot. The conviction comes with a penalty of up to 20 years behind bars. Rhodes' attorney says they do plan to appeal. The Senate has voted to protect same-sex marriage in a way that's never been done before. The bill, called the Respect for Marriage Act, passed with support from both sides of the aisle. It now heads to the House for a vote before making its way to President Biden's desk. That's it from here, Dom. Back to you.
2: Philip Manning with the latest there. Thank you very much. Now, down 30 percent this year. Why our next guest says this stock in this mystery chart could surge to 30 bucks and beyond. It's $23.98 right now. And if you haven't already done so, please follow our podcast if you miss Worldwide Exchange Check us out on Apple or Spotify or your podcast app of choice. Worldwide Exchange in audio format. We'll be right back. Investors bracing for fresh Fed speak from Chairman Jay Powell and hints on the central bank's rate hike path going forward. Futures right now in a holding pattern. A different story, though, for oil and crude prices. They're popping as this weekend's OPEC Plus production meeting shifts from in-person to virtual. Saxo Bank's Ole Hansen breaks down where energy may be heading next, and Congress set to step in and try to put a stop to that looming national rail strike that could cripple the U.S. economy. It's Wednesday, November 30th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today, kicking off this half hour with a look at U.S. equity futures, which are, again, in a holding pattern. We've got Fed speak coming up later on today and this week, and, of course, a big jobs number coming up as well. Right now, the Dow implied higher by just 30 points, the S&P up by about eight points, and the Nasdaq up by roughly 43, 44 points. In the bond market, yields are ticking just slightly lower. When it comes to the benchmark U.S. 10-year Treasury note yield, just about 3.74%. The two-year note yield, just about 4.48% right now. We are rounding out the final trading day of November. Technology continues to be a very weak spot for investors, with the NASDAQ the only major index on track to end the month of November lower. Now, among the biggest laggards there, you have Atlassian, also Lucid Motors and Tesla for that big NASDAQ trade. Now, from a sector perspective, Communication services and technology remain deep in so called bear market territory, off 39 and 26 percent respectively from their all time highs. So, joining me now with more on this story is Rocco Strauss, internet analyst at, and partner at Arite Research. Uh, Rocco, thank you very much, and great to have you in studio here with us yeah, today good as morning. well. Thank you. So, let, let's talk a little bit about the current state of play in tech, media, comm services, that technology trade overall. There are places now where people say, Things have gotten bad enough to where things could be attractive. Are you seeing it that way, and if so, where?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you can argue that. I mean, what, what you have seen, um, you know, over the past, say, like month or two, there's a lot of cost cutting happening across the board, right? You had a lot of layoffs. You know, I would call it the first phase of uh, downsizing or right-sizing these uh, these type of companies. Likely, you will see kind of like a second phase um, coming where you go beyond. Um, discontinuing some like ancillary businesses, you know, like think about like Facebook's portal or Snap kind of like getting rid of the pixie drone and so on. Um, You're rationalizing the business further and likely there's a third round of cuts coming, but only if we're kind of like entering into a deeper recessionary period where um, we all hope we're not getting to. Um, I mean, I would probably say that um, when you look at the the overall ad market, which is what I'm focusing most of my time on and where most of the big tech uh, names also fit into, um, the best proxy that you can have looking forward is looking at what ad agencies did in 08, 09. You saw 08 when the, the year Lehman went, when bust, literally still being a very good year for them. 09, they were all declining by 10% if you adjust their top lines for, um, for M&A that they had done in this year. We're now forecasting that, um, also the ad market is likely declining by some ad per 8% in next year and that's digital ads. Um, Major reason for that is you have an FX impact uh, coming towards us, which may be two to three percentage points point of that, um, 8%. And on top of that, you have uh, demand destruction. Think about all the crypto ads out, all the VC-backed grocery store apps. Um, being out of, the, out of the game, you have gaming apps still facing further headwinds from SDK runtime kicking in on Android, similar to what happened on Apple with ATT. Um, and you also have some demand deferral. Think about like electri- electric vehicles. They don't even have inventory to sell anymore, which means they're pulling brand spend towards the end of this year and into, um, into the next year. That's kind of like the current state of this market. The only sweet spots that we're really seeing is retail media and the CTV as non-cyclical growth um, um, territories in here.
2: All right. So if we talk about the digital ad market, as you just laid out, one of the things that we saw earlier this week was a stock that we don't talk about often at all. It's a very small cap stock. It's called Taboola. But it's a name that is very much entrenched in native online advertising. And Yahoo, which is privately owned now by Apollo, has now taken a 25 percent stake in Taboola. Some will say that is this a perhaps commentary on a maybe bottoming process in digital ad, kind of the the market overall, if you have buyers now willing to step in and take stakes in companies like a Taboola? Or is this just a symptom now of maybe people saying, hey, we just need to get a presence somewhere and this is where we need to spend?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd probably say that the further you are going into these kind of like recessionary periods, you also get to more rationalization. And you have um, similar functions across you know, probably 15 to 20 ad tech companies out there. Some of them will join forces. Um, we have seen that, you know, looking back at the, the growth deceleration that we had in 2018. You have seen a lot of these smaller ad tech companies being snapped up. Think about like Millennial Media going into AOL um, and Yahoo snapping up a lot of these companies at the time. And I think that's similar to what we're seeing with Tabula and, uh, and Yahoo here as well.
2: Now, when it comes to the, the beatdown that we've seen in certain tech media and telecom stocks, social media has been, f- of course, front and center there. One of the names, and I will put this out there because it was our mystery chart. We teased it. This is Pinterest. Right. And, and Pinterest is not a name that people think about perhaps right off the top of their head when you say social media. But is this a stock that you like given the fact that it's lost a third of its value year to date?
0: Yeah, and, and it's debatable if it's actually social media or not, right? I mean, 50% of, or so of um, the revenues that Pinterest is doing is more like a search-related or search-query-related um, advertising revenue that they have. And, um, what well, we think, what can actually happening while everyone is talking about a new CEO coming on and being capable of building a full, fully fledged ad tech stack within the business, I think we can go a step further. It is an ex SVP coming in from Google, having scaled a business, a shopping business to $30 billion, um, there. He could just come in and enter like a partnership with Google, opening up some of that 50 percent of um, you know, revenues, which has come from search queries to Google's AdWord business, bringing in millions of additional advertisers, increasing density. And with that pricing and ultimately you are juicing your top line massively by increasing the number of advertisers, likely by 20 to 30 fold on that platform.
2: All right pinterest a top call here from rocco strauss at erite thank you very much for joining us here in person
0: yeah appreciate it glad to be here thank
2: you all right let's get a check on some of this morning's top stories and headlines sylvana Hinao is here with those hi sylvana
4: dom congress is set to take steps to try and avert that national rail strike ahead of next week's december 9th deadline House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says lawmakers in that chamber will vote today on a bill to impose that tentative contract deal that was reached back in September. Pelosi adding the House will vote on a separate proposal to give seven days of paid sick leave to railroad employees. Senate leaders are vowing to try and quickly pass legislation once it is sent over from the House, despite some senators pushing for changes to the deal. Disney is warning an upcoming restructuring under CEO Bob Iger could result in impairment charges in a securities filing the company citing organizational and operating changes under Iger's watch for the potential financial impact. And Sam Bankman-Fried set to speak about the collapse of FTX. The former CEO of the crypto exchange is scheduled to talk with Andrew Ross Sorkin during the New York Times Dealbook Summit today. Ahead of that sit down, Bankman-Fried spoke with Axios, saying that regulation and proper oversight could have helped protect FTX from its collapse, but added that he bears the brunt of the blame. Andrew, we'll have more coming up on Squawk Box. Dom, we'll all be watching.
2: Absolutely, a must-watch interview there. Absolutely, thank you very much, Solana. Turning to oil prices now, crude looking at its modest gains right now for today, as investors gear up for this weekend's big meeting by OPEC plus, its OPEC and its partner countries, which includes Russia by the way. It's now gone virtual. Reports suggest the group will likely keep its output policy unchanged, although additional production cuts could be could be on the table. This potential move would come as continued COVID lockdowns in China ding demand and the ban and price cap on Russian oil looms ever large. For more on the price action around oil, let's bring in Ole Hansen, the head of commodity strategy over at Saxo Bank. Ole, there are a lot of moving parts to this. Is this an OPEC plus meeting that could yield a potential game changing catalyst it doesn't seem like traders and investors are viewing it that way right now.
10: Good morning, Dom. I think it probably will be very dependent on where we see the price action uh, into the Friday session, basically what levels we are seeing heading into the weekend. Because at these current levels, I don't think they will uh, they will do anything additional in terms of cutting production on top of what they did already uh, for this month. Simply because we we, uh, we we don't know the full impact of of these lockdowns in China yet. There is. Uh, uh, real-time data basically suggesting that the mobility is not hurt to the extent that warrant uh, the big drop we've seen in oil prices during the last week. We also, as you mentioned, have it the embargo that uh, kicks in uh, from next week, and that that will unlike, uh, will likely lead to uh, a, another drop in supply. So I think with that in mind, they're probably going to keep their the powder dry for now. But uh, surely the uh, a level at 80 or below is not uh, – a price that they would have invested just a few months ago. Considering it's it's more or less back to where we started the year. I mean, only the, the, the chart we're showing
2: the chart right now for Brent and WTI, U.S. benchmark prices. I mean, there's no doubt it, it, it's a long to medium term downtrend, medium to long term downtrend here. What what prices are, are OPEC and its partner countries looking at to try to stabilize crude at? We've also then heard some rumblings from the Biden administration about how there could be a a look to replenish our strategic petroleum reserve, the SPR in the U.S., around 70 bucks a barrel if it were to happen. So, So what exactly is OPEC trying to figure out in terms of its equilibrium or ideal price?
10: Well, I think first and foremost, uh, trying to work out what is the actual demand out there right now, and uh, they they saw some weakness uh, entering into uh, November, leading to the the cut that they they made. But the the cut so far has probably evened out the the reduction we've seen from China. So, so with that in mind, they will just continue to keep an eye on demand. Obviously, we're also somewhat concerned about the the availability of supply, given the embargo that that kicks in. So. I think we, having heard uh, the, uh, the the head of uh, the energy minister from Saudi Arabia talk about the 90s on a regular basis, so I think that is really the area they would like to see oil trade within at a, at a relatively stable, with a relatively stable price action. So so I would imagine that, that a break below 80s is, is clearly not in their interest. And it's, it's not one they see as being, you can almost say, fair, considering what we have been through so far this year with the war in Ukraine, with the sanctions against Russia, uh, with the global demand still rising, that they don't feel that a price below 80 is warranted at this point in time.
2: Ole, before we let you go, you mentioned the Russian oil sanctions looming. We've got those price caps kind of in play coming up here as well. Is it going to have an effect on oil prices? Right now, it doesn't seem like it's, 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 it's at all impactful in a meaningful way to what's happening to, 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 to upside price moves.
10: Well, at the current levels, most certainly not, uh, simply because euros is already trading at a discount of more than $20 to Brent. So uh, it will be well below the, the, kind of, the kind of price cap levels that has been talked about. So uh, I think for now, it's, it's probably, to a certain extent, almost dead in the water. They may be uh, revisited if we suddenly see a, a fresh spike in, in oil prices. But at this point, it's more the, the actual embargo on seaborne crude, uh, more than the, the talk about a price cap that could potentially underpin the prices over the coming weeks. All right.
2: Ole Hansen, head of commodity strategy at Saxo Bank. Thank you very much, sir. We'll see you soon. Thank you. All right. Coming up on the show, your morning's big money movers, including shares of one biopharma company, surging 30 percent ahead of the opening bell. Another mystery chart, 32 percent gains. we got that name coming up next when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. Welcome back. Time now for your big money movers. Shares of Workday popping on the back of third quarter results. The enterprise software maker beating both on the top and bottom lines. The company also slightly raising its full fiscal year subscription revenue outlook. The company also announced a $500 million stock buyback program. Shares right now up about 8.5% in the pre-market trade. Now, a different story for shares of CrowdStrike. Plunging on a weaker than expected growth forecast for new revenue, earnings and revenue for the third quarter topping expectations. Now, CEO George Kirch citing quote-unquote macroeconomic headwinds For that disappointing revenue outlook, those shares right now down about 20% in pre-market. And then there's our mystery chart, which is Horizon Therapeutics. Those shares taking off after its board revealed it is fielding takeover offers from several pharma giants. The biotech company says it is in talks with Amgen, Sanofi, and a unit of Johnson & Johnson. Horizon, which makes drugs for rare autoimmune and severe inflammatory diseases, adds that it can't be sure that an offer will be made by any of the three, but shares right now are up 32% in the pre-market. Well, time now for something random but interesting. For that, we send it out to Brian Sullivan for RBI.
1: Time now for your morning RBI. It's back and today let's get macro about the macro economy. Deutsche Bank's economists have been noting for a while that a sign of a coming recession is the number of states with either increasing or decreasing economic activity as measured by the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank. So let's get into that and look at a chart that they made. All right, a lot going on here, but the blue line is the number of states with increasing economic activity. So The higher that line is on the chart, the more states have positive economic data. It's a good thing. In the meantime, the gray shaded areas are recessions going all the way back to the late 1970s. And you can clearly see that in those recessionary times, the number of states with positive economic activity plummets. Now, obviously, that seems obvious. Recessions are slowdowns. But Deutsche Bank also notes that there is a bit of a tell here to maybe look at the future. They found that a sign of a possible coming recession is when five or more states decline for seven straight months. When that's happened, recessions tend to hit not long after. It happened in the early 80s, the mid 90s, 2000, 2008, and the pandemic lockdowns. Five states or more dropping for seven straight months. Okay, so where are we now? Well, we're getting close to that mark. Deutsche Bank notes that the number of states declining was six in June, just three in July. That's a good sign. But then 16, nine and now a whopping 27 states showing declining economic activity in October. Twenty seven states. That is the most since covid first hit. All right. So, again, a lot going on here. But the bottom line is this. We've now had four of the past five months where more than five states saw declining activity. Deutsche Bank says we need seven in a row to be the tell for a coming recession, which they expect is likely to come in the second half of the year. Obviously, we're going to keep following this data and see if this month and December fit that trend. If they do, I guess we'll call it the unlucky seven. Random, but interesting.
2: All right, Brian Sullivan, thank you very much for the RBI. On deck for the show, why Elon Musk is calling on the Fed to take easing action. Jenny Harrington is standing by on that and where she says you should be putting your money to work right now, including shares of one beaten up retailer. We've got that name coming up next. And a reminder, it's Pro Week all week long on CNBC.com. Today, it's famed investor Lee Cooperman picking some of the biggest names in the market and some smaller stocks he thinks may have room to run. Cooperman is also taking your questions, subscriber questions, just go over to cnbccom slash uh, pro pro talks at 3 p.m. Eastern Time today. Big interview. Brian Sullivan conducting that one. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A look at the busy day ahead for investors on the economic front. We'll get ADP employment figures at 815 a.m. Eastern Time ahead of the big Friday monthly jobs report. At 8.30, it's the latest look at third quarter GDP. And at 10 a.m., more jobs data with the October Job Opening Labor Turnover Survey, or JOLTS, as well as pending home sales figures. At 2 p.m., the Fed releases its latest beige book. Now, on the earnings front, results from Hormel, Salesforce, Box, PVH, amongst others, and several Fed speeches, including Fed Governors Michelle Bowman and Lisa Cook. And then at 1.30 p.m., a highly anticipated speech from Fed Chair Jerome Powell. So let's dive more into the trading day ahead. A lot of catalysts there. Let's bring in Jenny Harrington, the CEO of Gilden Hill Asset Management. She's also a CNBC contributor, featured prominently and often on the Halftime Report. Now, Jenny, I want to just show you this Elon Musk tweet mm-hmm. from earlier this morning, referring to the possibility of a recession. He says, trend is concerning. Fed needs to cut interest rates immediately, They are massively amplifying the probability of a severe recession. Is a severe recession something, Jenny, that you are expecting in the coming weeks and months?
6: No, but I also think it's more important when you read a a tweet like that, when you read a, a statement like that, the first thing we all need to do is consider the motivation. And so what's Elon Musk's motivation on saying something like this? Well, his I'm one of the richest men in the world status has been totally predicated on the propped up valuation of Tesla stock. Why was Tesla stock propped up? Because that that free money drove trading volumes into into high risk, high return companies and created nosebleed valuations. So I read this and I am super cynical and super skeptical. And I look at this saying like, oh, what's he really want? He really wants his Tesla stock to go back up because the reality is, is no, we don't need to cut rates to avoid a severe and deep recession. What we've been seeing throughout the year the past 12, 15 months are these rolling recessions. And so I actually am in the Ed Yardeni camp that ultimately those rolling recessions lead to maybe a broader, maybe a more mild, maybe no recession. I think we will have one, but I think it'll be more mild. So when I think about the idea of the Fed even cutting, my skin bristles. And the reason for that is the reason we're in this mess is because of 10 plus years of free money near zero interest rates. And what that did was that completely broke down the risk return relationship. You couldn't even for the past five plus years with no functional risk free rate of return to use, you couldn't even run proper net present value or discounted cash flow valuations. And what are we doing now? We're, We're recreating a functional market environment where there's functional risk and functional return relationships again. So no, the Fed should not just suddenly cut and pivot just to juice up the valuations of the nosebleed stocks again. All right. So Call me cynical.
2: I, 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 fair enough. OK, I mean, that's what makes a market. There are plenty of views out there and people kind of taking positions one way mm-hmm. or the other. Uh, one of the big kind of predicators or, or, or factors that go into that recession kind of narrative, that story, is the retail consumer, because consumer spending makes up such right. a big part of the U.S. economy. This is the holiday shopping season. we got to kind of tie it all together. What are you seeing right now? Is the consumer strong enough to keep powering the U.S. economy?
6: Um, Yes, but we need to be really clear on the fact that, yes, the consumer is very strong, but it's actually not the retail spending that's a major part of GDP, it's actually services. So, services have eclipsed retail spending in terms of GDP. And so, interestingly, Dom, when we look through our portfolio and we say what could do well, even if we have a very lackluster market, or another mediocre or down year in 2023, one of the stocks that pops right up for us is Marriott. Even though it's not a cheap valuation, it's got huge earnings surety and huge earnings growth ahead. Um, so I think that's that's to me like one of these service stocks. We also own JetBlue. Where do I think people continue to spend? I think they will continue to spend on travel. And I think that JetBlue, we've already seen their earnings start to return very nicely. So I think these kinds of things will stave off a severe recession. But I don't think it's the spending on, on goods. I think maybe that's a little, you know, everyone's kind of sick of spending on goods. They want experiences. We spent on goods and pulled a lot of demand forward during the pandemic. And now it's time to do fun stuff again. Um so, and, but, things, but Jen, like but healthcare. Jen, uh, Jen, Jen, yeah, Jenny, Jen,
2: you, uh, you, you say you're, they're not spending on goods, but we just had record Cyber Monday and Black Friday sales. <sighs> There have got to be retailers out there that have been beaten up enough where they they present some kind of value.
6: Uh, For sure. And thank you for bringing that back. So we saw record Black Friday sales, which was great. I was thrilled because in our portfolio we have reasonable exposure. On a nominal basis, they were great. On a real basis, um, there was almost no growth. But – the point is they still spent, and to your point, Dom, a lot of the retailers, like Kohl's, which we just added a new position in, like Foot Locker, like American Eagle, which we had to exit only because they cut the dividend, um, but we really still like the company and the stock, we're seeing... We're seeing the share prices of these do extremely well. And why is that? Because the prices had been so punished anticipating that the consumer would just lay down and die and never return to spending. They are spending. And so while I don't think the numbers are extraordinary that we're seeing, they're much better than what expectations were. But again, I don't think that's what's going to stave off. I don't think these kinds of companies and the earnings the earnings stability, I guess is the right way to say it. Sure. I don't think that's what's going to stave off a recession when you look at just the components of GDP. I sure. think that comes more from the services sector. Right. But it's a sure. great point on how resilient the U.S. consumer is.
2: All right. Jenny Harrington, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Thanks very much. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Stock markets right now are implying a modest opening bell. The Dow Jones applied higher by 10 points. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway.